Remember the subject that, that uh, Paul is answering at, at the end of verse 16 of chapter 2. Remember he asked the question, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for these things? And he answers it, he begins to answer it, in verse 5 of chapter 3, doesn't he? Our sufficiency is from God. And he begins to unfold what he's going to explain in the section we're looking at tonight in what he says in verse 6 of chapter 3, who also, God that is, also made us sufficient, talking about himself and the apostles and the workers that were working with him, first and foremost, but the us can, will include eventually all of us who are believers, right? In our service for the Lord. Where does our sufficiency come from for the service that we do? It comes from God. And how did He make us sufficient? He made us sufficient as ministers or servants. Diakonos, it's the same word we translate deacon. So a servant, minister of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So the letter is referring to what? I kind of mentioned that on Sunday nights. We've got a couple of days here between now and Sunday night, but some of you may remember. <laughs> the letter kills. What is the letter referring to? The law. Sorry? The law. The law, the old covenant, right? The Mosaic covenant. And you say, wow, the letter kills. Well, of course, he tells us in chapter seven of Romans that the law is holy and just and good, right? But he also tells us in the book of Galatians that the law was a schoolmaster to point the Israelites to whom? To Christ, right? To the Messiah. And when Christ comes, he tells us in the record of the upper room, which Paul records in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, right? Paul labels it. He got it direct. This was direct revelation from God, he tells us. He labels it. This is the new covenant in my blood. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, every time we celebrate it, we are announcing this is the new covenant in Christ's blood, right? And that we are under relationship with God on the basis of the new covenant, not the old covenant. How many times do you think about that when you celebrate the Lord's Supper? We don't hear it much, do we? We don't hear much of the Lord's Supper, but the actual words are there in 1 Corinthians 11. This is the new covenant in my blood. And blood is the ratification of the old covenant. Blood was used to ratify the old covenant, right, when it was given. And blood is used to ratify the new covenant. But it's the blood of the Son of God, not the blood of animals. So Paul is setting up right here in verse 6 an enormous contrast, right? This is a technique. It's a literary technique. We use it oftentimes as a teaching style or a teaching method. When we're trying to emphasize something, we'll sometimes argue from the lesser to the greater, right? We want to emphasize the greatness of something. We'll talk about what is lesser and then build the greater is better because of how much more it exceeds the lesser. And that's what he's going to do here. 
And to me, this is fascinating. So beginning in verse 7, what we want to look at tonight is 3, 7 through 4, 6. Now, I know that's an ambitious desire to try to cover that many verses, and we won't cover each one in detail, as important as they are. But I want to try to work through this section from chapter 2 to 7 in the six sessions that we have. So this is what we're going to try to cover tonight. And it, and it flows together, so it's important to see 3, 7 through 4, 6. It's a continuous flow of thought. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 7, there's a, a, a subtle change to the flow of thought, and we'll see that as we get to that, Lord willing, tomorrow night. But he's going to begin to explain then this statement in verse 6 that the Spirit gives life and the letter kills. Well, what does he mean by that? He's going to explain that. And he's going to do that in three sections here. In verses 7 through 11, he's going to contrast the uh, Old Covenant and the New Covenant and <coughs> demonstrate the superiority or preeminence of the New Covenant. All right, and then in verses 12 to 18, he's going to demonstrate that access to God by Christ is far exceedingly more glorious than the access to God they had under the Mosaic Covenant. And then in chapter 4, 1 through 6, he's going to describe that the ministry that he and the other apostles have been given is a greater ministry because it leads people not to Moses, not to the Torah or the law, but to Christ. Now don't forget, we mentioned this uh, on Sunday. Part of what Paul is doing here is two things. He's validating the credibility of himself as an apostle. Which you say, well, why would he have to do that with this Corinthian church? He planted this church. But... That's the way it's happened. The, the evil one has come in through these false teachers, gotten the, some of the Corinthians at least to question the authority or the credibility of the Apostle Paul as an apostle, which therefore means his message is under attack as well, right? The gospel itself. So that's important. And then secondly, so he's, he's validating himself and his ministry, not for any personal reasons, but because the truth is at stake, the gospel. But he's also, secondly, he's exposing the false method of these false teachers, or false apostles, as he calls them, in chapter 11, right? <laughs> so that's part of what he's doing, and at the same time, the Holy Spirit is using this whole, we call it a polemic, an argument that like you would use in a courtroom when you're defending a case. He's defending the case of the truthfulness of the gospel. And in the same time, he is revealing truths about the gospel and our relationship to the Lord Jesus that we have nowhere else in the New Testament but here. So you could almost say, although he probably wouldn't agree with us on this, but you could almost say, thank God for the false apostles. <laughs> because the false apostles coming into Corinth led Paul to write this defense of himself and the gospel, which then tells us these wonderful truths about what it means to be a born-again Christian. Okay? So, 
verses 7 through 11. Let's read these, those together and think about, about those. For the, but if the ministry of death, so you see he's continuing the thought of what he said in verse 6. The letter kills, and now he calls it the ministry of death. Talked about the old covenant now. It was a ministry of death. Written and engraved on stones, the Ten Commandments, if it was glorious, and it was, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? So you see what he's saying? He's saying that the giving of the law was glorious, but the giving of the new covenant is more glorious. So it's a relative comparison, right? And what he's going to particularly refer to here is when Moses got the law, and it might be good to go back to Exodus 33 and 34 and see that to refresh our memories. Some of you may remember how that works out. But you remember how Moses went up on the mount in Mount Sinai and got the uh, Ten Commandments and then the other requirements of the building of the uh, tabernacle and so forth. Chapter 32, just, just to set the context, you know, from chapter 24 to 31, we have the explanation of the building of the tabernacle and all the different parts of the tabernacle. I think you all have been studying that, right? Well, 24 to 31, he gives that. Then we have that failure of the golden calf in 32. And then we have Moses going face to face with the Lord in 33 and 34. And then from 35 to 40, he comes back to almost a repetition, almost word for word the same in 24 to 31, right? Only this time they're actually building it. He was giving the prescription for it before. And then they're actually building each of the components, Bezalel and so forth or Yuri are building the different components of the tabernacle. So twice in Exodus, each of the components of the tabernacle are given in detail. That is a big clue to us. That's important to God. But in between those two is this wonderful section in chapter 32, I mean chapter 33 and 34 where Moses goes up. Uh, we'll begin verse 1 just to set it verse 33.1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, and you and the people from if you brought out of the land of Egypt the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it, and I will send my angel before you, and so forth. Right? And so Moses then pitches the, verse 7, he takes his tent, pitches it outside the camp, call it the tabernacle of meeting. And then Moses spoke to the Lord, verse 11, face to face. Don't miss that, 33.11, because that's what Paul is going to key off of in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, where he talks about the face of Moses and the face of Jesus Christ, right? He's keying off of this verse. So Moses spoke to the Lord, or the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp and his uh, servant Joshua and so forth. So the Moses and the Lord have this exchange about going into the, the promised land and, and, and it's kind of a test of Moses' heart but it's also a test of the nation of Israel how much they really want the Lord's presence with them. And it's, it's a fascinating exchange and in verse 18 of course Moses says Lord show me your glory. Show me your glory. 
and the Lord hides him in the cleft of the rock and goes by him and shows the glory. Well, in chapter 34 then, when Moses, verse 29, I'm skipping over the intervening part you can read on your own. He, he come, came down from Mount Sinai, 34, 29, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. And Moses did not know, notice at the end of verse 29, this is what Paul is going to be referring to, 2 Corinthians 4 and 3. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with the Lord. So, an amazing thing happened. He went up on the mountain. He asked to see the Lord's glory, the Shekinah glory. And some of the glory gets on him, <coughs> on his face. So he comes down the mountain with the two tablets, but he doesn't know that his face is shining with the glory of God, see? But the Israelites know it, and they see him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, they were afraid to come near him because of the glowing. So what does Moses do? He, he puts on a veil over his face, when he's with the people, he has a veil because he doesn't want them to be afraid when he speaks to them the commandments the Lord's given him. That when he goes back to see the Lord back on the mountain, he takes the veil off. He has that, there's no barrier between he and the Lord. Okay? Well, that's the picture. Come back now to 2 Corinthians in chapter 3. That's the picture that Paul's referring to here. Now, I have to stop and ask myself, and, and a good Bible student, we should do that. Why did Paul pick that particular incident to build off of this truth that he's about to elaborate here in 2 Corinthians 3? Because it's not recorded, it's not, the reference to Exodus 34 is not given anywhere else in the New Testament. I checked in Hebrews chapter 11. I just want to make sure in the great role of the great heroes of the faith, you know, and Moses is in there. But the Exodus 34 incident when he's face to face with God, that, would, that should be a highlight of his life. It's not there. It's only here. Now I think the reason it's here is because this was what the fault, it may be I should say, it may be what the false teachers were doing in trying to demonstrate that their truth, their message was more credible than Paul's gospel message, they were trying to say, yeah, but Moses went up on the mountain. He was face to face with God. Who's this Paul? You know, I mean, he, he was a Pharisee and then suddenly he supposedly becomes a Christian and, and these, these people, of course, they're unbelievers. The false teachers are unbelievers. That's clear in chapter 11. And so they are uh, using that as a way to give credibility to their emphasis on the Old Covenant and the greatness of it. That's important. Because while we don't want to say there we don't want to say that the Old Covenant wasn't great. We don't want to say that. I want to make myself clear. We don't want to say that. The law is holy and just and good, according to Romans 7. And this was kind of the predicament we find when the Lord brings in the new covenant and sets aside the old covenant. He gave the old covenant. And only he could set it aside, therefore man couldn't do it. But this was all part of God's redemptive plan. Part of why we think of ourselves as 
dispensationalist. This is dispensational theology. We recognize there's, there are different dispensations in how God administers his grace in his relationships with human beings, depending on timing in his program and plan, right? And so the law was good and great, but the new covenant is greater. And so that's part of what Paul's trying to emphasize here in verses 7 through 11. So verse 7, again, chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. The ministry of death written and engraved on stones. He calls it the ministry of death in verse 7. Look what he calls it in verse 9. It's the ministry of condemnation. In what sense is the law the ministry of condemnation? Good. And it's intended to show us that, right? You can't live up to it. But that's important because some of these false teachers were trying to say, and there are people today, they call it the third use of the law and so forth, they're trying to say that we can be sanctified by keeping the law. Right? And that's a core ingredient of covenant theology. If the core covenant theology, sanctification, third use of the law, Luther, Calvin talked about, you know, that the law can be used in sanctification. But Paul says in Romans 7, the law made me sin more. <laughs> See? So the, the law was a ministry of condemning. What was another characteristic of the law that I mentioned on, on Sunday, for those of you that, that were able to be there on Sunday, that the law gave, it was something outside of us and gave instruction, but what was the problem? Why the law couldn't sanctify us? Somebody turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 3 and read that. Out loud, I mean. <laughs> Read the first six words real slow. <laughs> Somebody got it? Shall I read it? Go ahead, sister. Okay, for what the Lord could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, condemns sin in the flesh. Thank you, sister. So the first few words for what the law it could do for some of us? No. no. And was the problem with the law? Why couldn't the law do it? Weak through the flesh. It was weak through our flesh. See. Our old nature. The law didn't give any enablement. That's the big difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The New Covenant, He gives us the Spirit, and by the Holy Spirit coming to live in us, He enables us to fulfill the law and the rest of the Word of God. So now we have an enablement. Well, that, that's greater glory, isn't it? <laughs> isn't that better? Isn't that something better when you, when you measure the two of them? They had so, to keep um, killing the animals. That's right. They had to keep killing them. And they never had that, no. that, that freedom of conscience. Uh, Hebrews 9 talks about the conscience was never totally free of the, the guilt of sin. 
There was always that, that out there. And so, so the, back to verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 3, the ministry of death written engraved on stones, it was glorious so that the children of Israel couldn't look steadily at the face of Moses, that we saw that in chapter 34 of Exodus. And Paul adds, which glory was passing away. <laughs> How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Okay, that's one of the contrasts he sets up, right? And then in verse 9, another contrast. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, right? the law had glory, he's validating that again, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. What's the contrast in that verse between condemnation and righteousness? Those are opposites, aren't they? If you're under condemnation before our holy God, that's not good. But if you've been imputed with righteousness, the righteousness of Christ from the holy God, isn't that better? <laughs> Should make you happy. <laughs> And that, that's what he's trying to emphasize again. And then the third contrast in verse 11. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. What's the third contrast then? Passing away and remaining. Temporary and permanent. Those are opposites, aren't they? <laughs> so you see the three contrasts, he says, and, and he's, he's establishing the fact that the ministry of the Spirit is more glorious. It's more glorious because the Spirit gives life and the letter kills. It's more glorious because the ministry of the Spirit is a gift of righteousness. The ministry of the law is condemnation. It's more glorious because the law was always, in God's mind, temporary. The ministry of the Spirit is permanent. That's what eternal life means, right? It goes on forever. So do you agree with Paul that the ministry of the Spirit is more glorious? Are you convinced? <laughs> good, good. Then you're tracking along with him. He'll be happy. <laughs> He'll be happy we're doing so far. And then in verse 12 to 18, this is a fascinating thing that Paul does. Now what he does here, we don't have in Exodus 34. So he, you say, well, where did he get this then? Well, he got it from God. <laughs> He got this as direct revelation from God. Pick up verse 12. Therefore, now you notice there's a therefore in verse 12, and there's a therefore in chapter 4, verse 1. So both 12 to 18 of chapter 3 and 4, 1 to 6 are building off of the truth of 3, 7 to 11, right? He's showing, well, because of this, therefore this, right? Two big results that occur. So in verse 12 of chapter 3, therefore, since we have such hope, Hope is a great word, isn't it? Why do we have such hope? Because we are under the ministry of the Spirit. And therefore we're not under condemnation. We're not associated with the ministry of death. And we're not in something that's passing away. We're in something more permanent. We should have hope. Of all people on the planet, we should have hope. Therefore, since we have this hope, 
we use great boldness of speech. Now what's he bringing that out for? Because of what he was saying in chapter 2, verse 17, and chapter 3, 1 and 2, right? About his message and how he delivered it. And he delivered a bold message and they thought he was commending himself because of his boldness. By the way, when we know the truth as a born-again Christian, we know the truth of the gospel, right? And we're trying to explain it to someone. We will use, if you, if you really believe it, you're going to use boldness of speech, aren't you? I mean, you're going to be using words that you're convinced of. I believe, therefore I spoke, right? And it could be misinterpreted very easily as self-confident. He just over-self-confident. He just falsely self-confident, right? Mm -hmm. That happens to us too. Well, that's what the false teachers were using against Paul. His boldness of speech was because he was so full of himself. But really, his boldness of speech was because he was so full of the Holy Spirit. And that's where the hope, the certainty, the assurance, the truthfulness, the enlightenment, all of these things came from. You with me? So that's what he's saying here. Unlike Moses, <laughs> so here's that, another contrast, who put a veil over... Now, why did, what did we just read in chapter 34 of Exodus? Why did Moses put the veil over his face? Of the glory. When he was with God. And he couldn't see the glory. Because of the glory, but why did he put it on to, to veil? Why did he want to veil the glory when he was with the people? Because the people were afraid, right? But Paul tells us something else here. There was another reason why he did that. He put the veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Moses began to realize that glory was fading. And he didn't want them to see it fading. He didn't want to think about it fading either. Now that's fascinating to me. That the Holy Spirit revealed this to the Apostle Paul. Because this isn't in the Exodus account. This is something that the Lord gave him. But Paul is using this. He's bringing this out. Because I believe he's refuting these false apostles. That are trying to exalt the Torah, the Old Covenant, and the fact that Moses got it, and on the glory, look at the glory on his face. There's no glory like that in the Apostle Paul's face. And they would even probably go so far as to say there wasn't any glory like that on the face of Jesus of Nazareth, this one that Paul's talking about. And there wasn't, was there? Oh, except one time there was. You know what time I'm talking about? What time am I talking about, Sister Aileen? The, uh, very good, Mount Hermon. That's right. The Mount of Transfiguration. Then the glory was there, wasn't it? But they didn't know that because there were only three of the apostles there. Not even all the apostles were there. Paul wasn't there. But Paul saw his glory too on the road to Damascus, didn't he? But these Pharisees, these Judaizers, these false teachers, they didn't see that. So they thought Jesus was an imposter. And they think Paul's an imposter. And you're going to have to decide tonight whether you think Paul's an imposter or not. I've already been convinced he's not an imposter. I hope you're convinced of that. But if you are, you'll see what privileges there are for you as a born-again Christian because of what he tells us here. 
So Moses then has a dual purpose for why he's wearing this veil amongst the people. Not when he's with God, when he's amongst the people. He's doing it because he doesn't want them to be afraid when he gives them the commandments of how to build the ark, or build the ark of the covenant, I should say, in the tabernacle. But also because the glory is diminishing and he doesn't want them to see the end of what was passing away. You remember what Paul says in Romans 10, 4? It's a great evangelist memory verse. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to what kind of people? To all those who believe. Christ is the fulfillment. That's what telos, that's what the end means there. He's the fulfillment of the law for righteousness. He's fulfilled the law for me <coughs> if you're born again. Does that make you happy? <laughs> so they can't go around and try to hold the law against us. I could say, well, no, it's fulfilled. I'm, I'm united to Christ, and, and he fulfilled it for me. See, for all those who believe. See, that's supposed to give us comfort and assurance. And that's why Paul can say there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So he says, unlike Moses, verse 13, he put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily. By the way, look steadily at in verse 13 and beholding is in a mirror in verse 18. That's there for a reason. Both those, it's the same idea in both verses. But they were looking steadily at that glory of Moses, they were just amazed. You know, here he's been up with God. And that the glory of God's on him, and they were amazed at that, rightly so. Verse 14, but what happened? Their minds were blinded. You see what Paul has done? <laughs> he's going to take this situation about the veil, which I believe, as I say, the false teachers, I can't say this with absolute authority, right? But I'm just wondering, you know, trying to understand why Paul would use this incident of the veil at this particular juncture. I think he's playing off of something that they were trying to say was the glory of the old covenant. And he was saying, yeah, you know what that veil? That veil is representative of blindness. He says, for their minds were blinded for until this day, the same veil, the same veil, the same veil that Moses wore, the same veil, the same idea what the veil represented, right? Remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, which is what today, if you went to any synagogue in South Florida, that's all they would read, right? The Old Testament minus Isaiah 53. They won't read Isaiah 53. But the Old Testament, and he says here, their minds were blinded because the veil is only taken away in Christ. You and I were blinded before, weren't we? Before we were saved. That's one way I think one of the brothers, I think it was Aaron on Sunday, referring to John chapter 9, whereas once I was blind, now I see. That's the shortest testimony for every one of us who's born again, right? We could all say that. That ought to make us happy. Blindness is a terrible thing. 
especially if it's spiritual blindness. Physical blindness is bad enough. So thankful I've got my eyes still work. I hope I never have to go blind, but that's up to the Lord. But spiritual blindness is worse because that affects eternity. That's important to think about when we share the gospel with people too. If they're lost, they are blind spiritually at the time we're sharing with them. So don't get too rough with them. <laughs> don't get too discouraged when they don't see it. We see it. I mean, sometimes I'll, I hear Christians say, how come they miss this? It's so clear. Well, it's clear to you. You have the Holy Spirit and you're born again and now it's clear, but it wasn't clear to you when you were lost. You missed it too. Right? So it helps us stay humble. But even to this day, Paul says, when Moses, that is the Old Testament, is read, a veil lies on the heart. Over and over. Well, what if they read the law six times a day? <coughs> is that going to lift the veil? What if they read the law only in the purest Old Testament Hebrew. Is that going to lift the veil? What if they're facing Jerusalem when they read the law? Is that going to lift the veil, Nathaniel? What's going to lift the veil? Christ. Only one person, right? Jesus Christ. God has set it up that way. Only in Christ. That makes it easy to share the gospel, though, doesn't it? We don't have to go in any kind of complicated Hebrew or anything. We used to point him to Christ. And then we have our own testimonies, the best thing. He, that's one thing they can't refute. The fact that I'm a changed person. They can't refute that. And if they don't believe it, all they got to do is talk to my siblings. <laughs> they knew me before. Or anybody else that knew us, right? Before we were saved. But then the hope of the gospel, verse 16 to 18. And this is so awesome to me. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So this is a description of what he calls in Titus 3.5, regeneration. Right? Regeneration just is another word for being born again. But he does use that word in Titus 3.5. It's an important word. It's one, way, one word that helps us understand what it is to have new life in Christ, to be born again, regenerated. So when one turns to the Lord, the veil's taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Liberty from what? I can do whatever I want to? Then what is it liberty from? What's the context tell us? Liberty from... The law, but what aspect of the law is he emphasized? Condemnation. Good. Killing, condemnation, death, right? Been set free from that aspect of the law. The judgment. Does that make you happy? And how long? For how long am I set free from it? For a few weeks? For a couple of months? Till I sin again? Forever. This is part of, this is a parallel really to the whole message of Galatians, isn't it? Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore we have been set free by Christ. But it's free to love 
one another, to love the Lord and to love one another, right? To serve one another in love. That's what that liberty he talks about there is, and that's what it is here. But then he adds in verse 18, in Titus 3, 5, remember he talks about with the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, right? He links those two things. Regeneration, the washing of regeneration is one time, occurs right at new birth, that's a one-time event, but the renewal is an ongoing process, it's in a continuous tense, right? And it's by the Holy Spirit. Now what's he use primarily to do that? To do that renewing in us? What does he use? No, what, but what does the Holy Spirit use? The Word. The Word. The washing of the water of the Word, right? So he uses the word, he can use life circumstances, he can use people, he can use a lot of things, but his primary tool, instrument, is the word of God. And that's what he's talking about here in verse 18. But we all, that is all born against, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. The mirror is the word of God. Beholding, and this is that that beholding is that looking steadily at, as, as they did in verse 13. Beholding is in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Something is happening to us while we're reading, meditating on, studying the scriptures. Stay focused. You don't have to hear the bells. You can turn it off. Uh, when we're reading the scriptures, something happens to us. A miracle. Now this is important, beloved, because sometimes when we communicate to new believers about the daily quiet time and being daily in the Word, it can become kind of just an empty ritual, a routine, right? <coughs> well, i got to do my quiet time, you know. You hear young people at camp, you know. Well, i got to get up at 7.30 and do my quiet time. Instead of, i got to get up at 7.30 and meet with the Lord. And I'm going to be in His Word, and I'm going to see Him as I see Him in His Word. He's going to transform me into His image by the Holy Spirit who is in me. <laughs> That's the anticipation we should have every time we come to the Scriptures. Now, beloved, I'm not perfect at this either. I don't think of this every time I come to the Scriptures. I'm getting better at it because I'm trying to train or remind myself, right? Put little reminders and notes out there. But this is a, something we have to teach ourselves, remind ourselves. Look, and, and we, you're, doing it, you're a parent with children. Remind the children when you're around the table. Okay, sons and daughters, we're going to the Word of God now. When we go to the Word of God, when we're believers, we know that Word of God's going to do something to us. It's going to metamorphosize us. See, we were when we were born physically, we were born in whose image? Huh? Well, actually, not quite, right? Because in Genesis, uh, they said God. We, we were man and woman were made in the image of God in Genesis one, but then they fell in Genesis three, and then we see Adam. in Genesis five that they were made Adam. in the image of Adam, Adam right? Adam. Mm -hmm. And all who are in Adam shall die. die. <laughs> that image is a corrupt image. 
But when we're born again, we're made in the image, or being made, I should say, in the image of Christ. The second man, the last Adam. And and so the Imago Dei, the image of God, is being, we're being restored to the Imago Dei, the image of God through Christ. And that's what Paul's talking about here. So we'll read the verse again, verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, the veil's taken away, just like it was when Moses went to God, he took the veil away, right? Because he saw God face to face. When we go to the Word of God, we see God face to face. The veil's been taken away in Christ, and because we're believers in Christ, we behold in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and we're being transformed. That's in the present continuous tense. We are being continuously transformed into the same image from glory to glory, which tells us it's progressive. Right? From one glory to another. It's not going to all happen the first time we come to the Bible. It's not going to happen after we've been saved 20 years. It's going to hopefully keep happening if we keep coming to the Word of God and letting the Word of God act on us and transform us. See? So every time we come to the Bible, and that's why we pray too for enlightenment, every time we come to the Bible, we should be anticipating that God's going to do something to us to make us more like Jesus. Wow! And that's true only for the super spiritual Christians? True for every born again Christian who is in fellowship with the Lord, of course, that would be understood. If we're out of fellowship with Him, there, there could be a bit of a breach there, but that the Lord tells us how to stay in fellowship with Him, right? So it's within our realm of possibility to stay in that position. And then lastly, and I'll do it quickly here, the first six verses of chapter 4, because you say, well, why are you just covering the first six verses of chapter 4? Chapter 4 is a chapter break, isn't it? Well, don't forget, beloved, the chapter breaks are not part of the original text. They were brought in in the 12th century in the Middle Ages to try to help divide up the material. And for the most part, the brethren that did that did a good job. But as you probably, maybe if you've read 2 Corinthians before, 2 Corinthians is a very difficult book to divide up. <laughs> and if you look at commentaries, very few commentaries are in agreement on how to do that. So we have to look at the text and see where the changes in the flow of thought occur. And so I, I believe that the first six verses of chapter 4 are a continuation of the thought of what he's been describing in chapter 3, and that's why I wanted to cover those tonight, because he'll, he'll change the flow of thought there in, in 4.7. So therefore, the second therefore in chapter 4, verse 1. The first therefore in verse 12 of chapter 3 was, since we have such hope, right? But the second therefore in chapter 4, verse 1 is, since we have this ministry, right? So we, we have the hope in verse 12 and therefore we use great boldness of speech in chapter 4, verse 1, since we have this ministry. Now he's linking back to ministers of the new covenant, right? In chapter 3, verse 6. Since we have this ministry as we've received mercy instead of condemnation. By the way, if we received it, did we earn it? <laughs> it's a gift. 
It's a gift. Mercy is a gift, see? So as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. We don't get discouraged. Boy, that's a great verse. Because there are a lot of people around, Christians, I mean, that we interact with that are discouraged, aren't there? This is a way we can help them. And you and I can get discouraged very easily with the life circumstances. When we try to live for God and things don't go right. That's part of the, the great value of this letter at Second Corinthians, the great comfort epistle. But then he adds in verse 2 a parallel statement really with chapter 2, verse 17. In chapter 2, verse 17, where we began this flow of thought here, in, in 2.17, we are not as so many peddling the Word of God, right? We talked about what it meant to misuse, manipulate the Word of God for selfish purposes like a peddler would do, you know? Well, here in chapter 4, verse 2, he brings another tool of the false method the false teachers were using we have but we we true apostles have renounced the hidden things of shame not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully how can someone handle the word of God deceitfully what's an example there's, there's a thousand of them but what would be one example of handling the Word of God in a deceitful way? Apostasy. Sorry? Apostasy is one way. Apostasy, yeah, apostasy, right? Okay. Not reading the whole verse, just part of a verse, and pulling that statement out by itself, right? And not keeping it in its context, right? Did you say, did you say something different? Well, out of context. Out of context, right? That's handling the Word of God deceitfully. Making it say what we want to hear. <gasps> Making it say what, what we think the people want to hear. That's even worse. Which is the method of the megachurches today. I'm speaking in general terms, but this is Mr. Schuler, who's the father of the megachurch movement, said that's what he did. He went door to door and did... He claimed he was doing evangelism, but he went door to door with a survey... And in the survey, he said, if you were going to, to people who didn't go to church, if you went to church, what would you want? Mm. Well, I'd want this style of music. Okay, what would you want? Well, I would want very little of a gospel message. I don't want the cross. I don't want blood mentioned and blah, 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 blah. And I definitely don't want the word sin ever mentioned. And so that's what he gave them in the Crystal Cathedral. That's all documented. I'm not misrepresenting him. That's all documented. In fact, we had a brother right there in at Boulevard, um, Ron Ward's friend, that he's not there now, remember, I uh, spoke Spanish, uh, oh. but anyway, he had visited there, he told me this five years ago, something, he had visited there because his sister was in, in the LA area, and, and so he made it a point on a Sunday, he wanted to go see, and he, he, he validated everything, he's the one that told me, but I just told you, uh, not Gonzalez, <sighs> can't remember, anyway, it'll come to me. Ron knows, Ron would remember his name. So therefore we have this ministry, we receive mercy, we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness. By the way, that walking in craftiness, if you go over to chapter 11 and verse 3, the same word is used. And who's it attributed to in 11.3? Somebody. 
Satan himself. Same method he used in the Garden of Eden with Eve is what the false apostles are using. Well, he's already said that they're Satan's people masquerading, right? And God lets them. So, instead, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. He says, we come in, we are who we are, we're transparent, you know us, we know you, and we're doing this in the sight of God. I'm not trying to trick you, Paul says. I'm not manipulating you. I'm not playing with the Word of God. I'm giving you the truth as I've gotten it from the Lord. See? And that should be, as we guard our pulpits, that should be any form of pulpit ministry or any kind of Bible teaching ministry. We should make sure that's always the case, right? And we do. I know you all do. But, he says in verse 3 and 4, even if our gospel, notice the our gospel there, as opposed to the false teacher's gospel, right? So he's emphasizing his message, the truth, what he said in verse 2. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. See, one of the arguments that perhaps the false teachers were bringing in to discredit Paul was to say, if Paul's message were true, how come more Jewish people aren't believing it and getting saved? I mean, after all, the gospel came to them. How come so few of them are responding to it? Well, he's answering that question. <laughs> he already did it at the end of chapter 3. He says every time the Old Testament is read, in their unbelief avails over their heart. That is, it's not my fault because of the hardness of their hearts. You could say it's not even God's fault. Because, will. That's right. It's the hardness of their hearts. It's how they're bonded. So he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, not to the believers, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. And that God of this age is who? Satan. Satan. He can blind people to the gospel. Whoa. You ever thought about the fact that before you were saved, he may have been blinding you for a season of time? I'm pretty sure he was blinding me, and there were several things he was using to do that because I got saved so much later in life at 26. But the God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Moses... No, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's the image he's talked about in chapter 3, verse 18, right? Same word. Who is the image of God should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves. Again, probably a technique of the false apostles. They preached themselves. If somebody is preaching too much about themselves instead of about Christ, they're seeking a following after themselves. And that's why they were peddling the word of God and uh, using craftiness like he talked about before too. We don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bond servants for Jesus' sake. Great picture of what new covenant ministry looks like. We don't preach ourselves, we preach Christ. And we're servants. And then the, the last, we close tonight with 
one of the most glorious statements in all the Bible, verse 6. And this is a reference all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, right? Genesis chapter 1, remember, what did he do? God commanded the light, let there be light. And there was light. But he's going to use that then as a picture of what happened in your heart and mine the day we were born again. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. Kind of interesting. He didn't command the light to shine into the darkness. He produced light miraculously out of the darkness. That's what he had to do inside of us too, right? Who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Moses. Is that what it says? Where are you going to get the light of the knowledge of the glory of God? You're not going to get it in Moses' face, beloved. You're going to have to get it from the Lord Jesus. So you see here now, he's contrasting, I think, the face of Moses, which was, there was glory there. There was glory in the face of Moses because it was God's glory shining on him. But the face of Jesus Christ. You know, before I came here, uh, we were at that time of the month where uh, the full moon was rising in the eastern sky a few weeks ago. It was it was a time for Yom Kippur too. I did notice that. That was very nice. I was in Georgia for Yom Kippur, and this, the moon was a beautiful moon rising in the eastern sky. And I was in a place out in the country where it was real dark, and so I mean you could literally walk around by the light of the moon. It was. But, you know, it was reflected light. It was reflected glory. What makes that moon shine? Is there anything in the moon that makes it shine? Sun. It's reflected sun. glory, reflected from the sun. Now, when that moon comes up, as it you know went more and more into the lunar season, the moon would come up later and later right in the sky. Then when the sun came up behind it, I noticed that I couldn't see the moon anymore. It disappeared. Did the moon, was the moon still there? Yeah, the moon was still there. But what happened? The greater glory of the sun overcame it and just diminished it so that it became irrelevant, <laughs> almost. It was still there. And I thought, that's what Paul's saying here in this section 3, 7 to 4, 6, 7, 30. Moses' face is the moon. Christ's face is the sun. You and I have been brought in relationship with God where we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We see how He interacts with people in the Gospels. We see how He interacts with people through His apostles in the book of Acts. The book of Acts tells us, this is, Luke tells us, this is what all that Jesus began to do and to teach. <laughs> and He continued to do it through the apostles, right? <coughs> And we, we see the character of God. Now, we can learn a lot about the character of God from the Old Testament, from the tabernacle, from Moses, right? From the Torah. But compared to Jesus Christ? So don't minimize, or don't let anyone else minimize the glory, the awe, the wonder 
what it is to have a relationship with Christ. And when you come, like 3.18 tells us, to the Word of God, when we come to the Word of God, may we increasingly remind ourselves that, Lord, I want to see you, and I want to see you so you can transform me into your image from one glory to another. Regeneration, ongoing renewal. Both ministries of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So maybe Cassidy, if you would close in prayer for us and thank the Lord and pray for Journey Mercy.